Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to episode 104 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, sick and tired of Mitch's choices. (laughs) I deserve that. How are you? In general, I'm okay. In this moment, I'm incandescent with age. Okay, I suppose we should probably start unpicking this in case anyone's not sure what's going on here. So it is time. As if this year couldn't get any fucking worse. (laughs) (laughs) It's my turn this time, which uh, always strikes fear into Andy's heart. Now, when it's your turn, when it falls to you to choose, I think that you won't mind me saying that generally your picks are kind of called from mostly the 70s and the 80s. Films from your horror formative years. Which I say, are you calling me an old bastard? I am suggesting that you're probably a bit wiser than me. I certainly wouldn't agree with that, but carry on. Obviously, because I didn't really have horror formative years, or at least if I I did, but they were in my 20s, I tend to go for things that were kind of curiosities that I'd come across going to festivals or on kind of streaming platforms and stuff like that that I don't think get enough love or attention or things that I know necessarily aren't great, but have kind of caught a little bit of buckshot in my heart for some reason. In the spirit of that, I this week chose Nacho Vigalondo's Open Windows. Yeah, you did. Yeah, well done. Mm-hmm. So... To elaborate on why I picked that one, I saw this at Fright Fest a few years ago now. I want to say that it was like 2014 or 2015. It was quite a while ago. Crucially, I would say before Unfriended. Yeah, I saw it in the main screen at Fright Fest London that year. My recollection of the film was hazy, but when I was picking something, I was like, oh, I remember this. This, if I remember rightly, is this kind of quite smart, quite stylish, like tech horror that's like a little bit flawed, but has this kind of scrappy charm about it. Like it's trying to do something kind of big. It doesn't get it necessarily right all the way. But yeah, there was this kind of like fighting spirit to it that appealed to me. Sure. I hadn't watched it in the intervening time until <laughs> uh, until yesterday. On reflection, the ratios are a little off from how I remember it. The ratios being uh, flawed tech horror to scrappy charm Ah, yeah so um we could just wrap this up now and just go to bed really uh yeah you can call it and if you're like no i mean i'm not gonna trash talk the film out of hand because i think that there are some things that it gets right and some things about it that are quite cool but what i will say is that i'm not coming into this all guns blazing in the way that i was hoping to because my rewatch didn't quite go to plan i've got to be honest straight out the gate here mitch i think you've got an uphill battle ahead of you yeah i mean i'd be inclined to agree with you there however one necessary part of an andy versus mitch episode where it's my film (laughs) is that i have to give over my role as master of time yeah and i hope that 30 seconds in real time now passes quicker than 30 seconds real time in open windows because (laughs) it's quite a slog i find right are you ready yes yes okay three two one commence nick played by elijah wood is a fan of an actress called jill goddard played here by sasha gray he wins a competition to go to an event of some kind about one of her films and then go out for dinner with her afterwards. She cancels and with the aid of, or the apparent aid of a hacker called Cord, he hacks her phone. As it turns out, there is much more to it than that. What follows is a sci-fi tech horror odyssey involving multiple layers of hackers, a trio of French hackers, and much, much more hilarity ensues. Time. Oh. <laughs> Well then. Um, pretty much that. So I think that we should jump right into this thing. Yeah, let's just get in about it now. I just want to say right now that after this played somewhere, I'm not entirely sure which festival it was, Nacho Vigalondo got up in front of the crowd and said to them that they could feel free to slap him on the way out. Now, I don't think for a minute that I hated the film enough to hunt down the director with a view to slapping him. But I would certainly give them the stink eye. Very few films have made me want to inflict physical violence on their on their creators. And this is definitely not one of those films. I also want to say this is Nacho's first English language film, I believe. Yes, I think that that's true. Yeah, because I think before this he had done Time Crimes and Extraterrestrial. Mm-hmm. I want to say both of which I'm a big fan of. I think that Time Crimes in particular is awesome. I really, really love that film. It's, it's kind of a Coherence Another Earth style sci-fi thing. Yeah. 
that we all know that I love. Yeah, also, I'm a big fan of Colossal, which came after this. Colossal, yeah. I've been talking to a couple of people just because we've chosen this film this week, or I've chosen this film. I'm not going to put that on you. But um, I have been talking to a couple of people about Nacho's catalog, and I still haven't seen Colossal, but everyone I've spoken to about this this week have been like, I haven't seen Open Windows, but Colossal's awesome. Colossal is excellent. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Kaiju in general, but I thought Colossal was charming, and I thought it was fun, and something a little bit different. This, weirdly, in the midst of Nacho's other films, feels like a bit of a swing and a miss. I think that it's a bit of a sore thumb in the catalogue, and that's without having seen Colossal. I follow in the kind of slightly sci-fi kind of things that he'd done up till then. I can kind of see how it would lead to something like this. But yeah, we'll get into the things that I think work and don't work as it goes on. But I think we should start, and I do want to say that, I think that the way that this starts is quite cool. I think that it's probably the best example of the, because just to get it out of the way, for anyone that hasn't seen it, this film unfolds almost entirely on a laptop screen. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, A a, a laptop with the best battery I've ever seen. My one wouldn't have stayed the course, I can say that much. But yeah, we start with what appears to be the opening scene of a film. There's a bowling alley, an unidentified man bowls, a terrible actor, appears and explains to a night watchman that he's got these back aches and headaches and then basically the bowling man's eyes start glowing he lobs a bowling ball at him they become these weird kind of glowy eyed psychic chud like zombies yes that's exactly what happens yeah and basically ultimately the day is saved at least in this scene by the character that is played by jill goddard the character in this film. I want to say that this fake film within the film, Dark Sky, I would watch the hell out of this. I thought that actually, because I had forgotten that this was how this film opened. And when this happened, I was like, oh God, what's happening here? Um, <laughs> and I actually think that this bit works really well, partially because the film looks pretty terrible or like quite trashy. Excuse and me. I, <laughs> um, but obviously while we're watching this clip, also you see these... Um, screenshots getting taken yeah and obviously it unfolds that this is being watched on a laptop screen by nick who is uh, played here by elijah wood and whatever else there is to say about this film i think that elijah wood i really continue to love the fact that he throws himself into the weirdest films yeah i have plenty of time for elijah wood in this film i always think there's something really kind of naive and charming about elijah wood's performances and just about everything i think he's a really compelling screen presence i completely agree and i think that this film's no exception I think that he's doing good work here in all of the various kind of guises that we come to see him having. Um, Yeah, but what I will say is it it always annoys me that we're supposed to root for this guy who is ultimately a total fucking creep. Yeah, we'll get to that as well. That kind of comes to the forefront in a couple of scenes that I'd quite like to address as we go. Sure, Um, yeah. Because that did not escape my notice either. But I think that performance-wise, like I say, I think that um, at the core of it, he is doing good stuff here. Another thing that I think is kind of cool is that, like I say, he's watching a live stream of this event for Mm -hmm. um, this film within a film called I think it's Dark Sky 3 it's, right. there's a okay. panel conversation with a couple of the actors including Joel Goddard played here by Sasha Gray did you notice Nacho Vigalondo himself on the panel as the yes. director also I don't know if you noticed but this seems very much like it was actually filmed at Fantastic Fest I didn't notice that no that's cool yeah there's like Fantastic Fest like banners and stuff up which would make sense given that the film is set in Austin and Fantastic Fest takes place in Austin that's pretty cool no, that, that's the kind of thing that I'm just like my untrained eye and brain would never catch <laughs> just um, as well I'm here then keep right in the ship as always are you going to keep it linear tonight is that what this is I'm not even about to attempt to cobble <laughs> together the events of the third act you know what I picked it and I might struggle but we'll cross that bridge when we get there one thing that I do like in this sequence is and I think that this might be a commentary on Q&A's and I think that the way that Sasha Gray's character Jill is spoken to and about here mm-hmm. is kind of very like rooted in objectification and very much kind of diminishing her standing at the table despite the fact that she is a lead and she's the one that's kind of making the money for the film. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, she's she seems to be this uh, biggest actress in the world type character. Yeah, but like the tone of the Q and A towards her is like very degrading and very dehumanizing and stuff. Totally like, dismissive. Yeah, to the point that that feels like it has to have been a choice, and that feels like it is kind of trying to draw attention to the fact. Because I mean, I don't know about you, but I've been to Q and As where that's happened. I hate Q and As. I really, very, very rarely will stay for a Q and A nowadays because there's always one person that irritates me so so much. You've seen it. We've all seen it. You just want to stand up and say, Gonna you sit the fuck down? Yep. Why have you come here? 
and you think that this is the forum to ask that kind of question. Like, sit the fuck down. Yeah, this is something about going to festivals and going to events and things that's kind of worn away for me over the years. I don't really stay for uh, Q&As very often anymore either. And it's virtually never got anything to do with the film or the filmmaker. Most of the time, I'd be quite happy to hear the filmmaker talk about whatever it is that I've just watched. Yeah, my, my issue tends to lie with people who ask certain types of questions, people who say that their question is less of a question and more of an observation. I think that a lot of the stuff that people think it is necessary to ask in Q&As could wait to ask that person one-on-one at a bar. Yeah, and also, to be honest, Mitch, it's me and you talking here. No one else is listening to this. This is just me and you. The lure of the pub is quite strong for us. Yeah, I can't speak for anyone else, but I mean, that is true. (laughs) So we pull back and we see that we're watching this on the laptop screen of Nick, Elijah Wood's character. Now, he is the editor-in-chief, if you like, of a Jill Goddard fan site, jillgoddardcot.com, which I think that, like, is framed here as being kind of creepy enough in its own right i think that like it is quite possible to do those things without it being creepy but i can't put my finger on exactly how it comes across this way but i feel like there is a creepy undercurrent to that yeah yeah i I agree and i've read some stuff that Sasha Gray was quite drawn to taking on this film and taking on the character of Jill. I think based on some of the stuff she had encountered and endured herself. Really? That's kind of interesting, because Sasha Gray obviously best known for her work in the adult film industry. Yeah, yeah, quite the CV. Uh, yeah, a lot of credits in there. 209. <laughs> yeah, anything particular standing out for you? Um, a lot of sequels, I noticed. Yeah, <laughs> an awful lot of sequels, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you kind of feel like by the time you get to the 19th installment or something, you're kind of hitting diminishing returns. Yeah, like The Land Before Time. Exactly like The Land Before Time time that's a perfect comparator for this point um but no so she, so she was drawn to the character for that reason then that she kind of come across some of this kind of thing yeah i would imagine someone who has worked so long in the adult film industry and had been as popular as sasha gray was when she was performing in, in adult films probably had to endure a lot of bullshit and i think that's probably why she was drawn to this role in particular and i don't know if it was this way to begin with or if it kind of evolved to, to suit her kind more of a, yeah around her yeah that, w- that would make sense too I mean that's yeah that's something yeah. I can't really speak to but yeah that's an interesting point and yeah you're right I think that the chances are that that could very well be in step with her experience yeah so we find out at this point that Nick has won a competition to yeah. have dinner with Jill after this event and we see him recording a video that he's kind of being asked to do as part of it and eventually at this point he gets a call from someone called Simon Cord. That's right. Yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, At this point, nothing more than a voice on a telephone, but uh, the voice belonging to Neil Maskell from Kill List, who is doing a weird affectation. I don't know what's going on with his voice, but he's over-pronouncing all his consonants, and it's very jarring. Yeah, it is a little bit. He informs Nick, though, alas, alack, the contest has been cancelled. Nick's come all this way for nothing. And uh, Simon, at this point, also says that the reason that it has not kind of come together is because... Jill has cancelled it personally. Yeah, poor Nick sat there in his little shot and his little side shed. I think anybody like that in this his situation would be desperately hoping that he would meet her and they would fall in love and that would be that. Again, alas, it's not to be. He's kind of sold this story that Jill has cancelled this because she's a bit of a bitch. Yeah, and I think at this point, because I mean, this is the next thing that happens really is that uh, Simon, who's at this point, I think, masquerading as being part of the team that organised the competition or part of the event. Sure. Or something. At this point, he lets him in on the fact that he's hacked her phone. From this point on, there's a lot of suspension of disbelief has to happen for this film to work. Yeah, I think too much, I would say. Yeah, I think that this film has a very 90s attitude to hackers and what they're capable of. <laughs> I'm inclined to agree with you. But also, the willingness. I mean, I guess it's it's important to how the, the story shakes out that Elijah Wood sees this through. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. certainly in the early running, I mean, this is the second time I've seen Open Windows just to kind of give a bit of my background I saw it just after it came out okay mm-hmm. and actually kind of like you I, I remember I, I don't know if I was drunk when I watched it but I remember it being fine um, but watching it totally sober was a different experience and a, a grueling experience in a lot of ways um, and uh, I just found myself thinking even though I know how this is going to shake out watching it again I'm furious that this was how it was put together that we have to endure this increasingly unbelievable series of events and that our character would go along with it he never once really puts up any battle yeah there's a lot of kind of blind compliance I think that there's there's elements of that that maybe don't tie in logically 
that sure. we can look at as the kind of as the big reveal or the reveals kind of happen. But the phone hacking thing is a pretty gross thing in a series of gross things that will happen over the course of the film. Mm. Uh, we also find out at this point that she's about to uh, break up with her boyfriend, who is also a co-star in these films, and she's having an affair with her agent, who she's on her way to see. We know this because we can listen into her phone calls because Nick now can as well. That's right. Yep. So yeah, I think that it's worth saying at this point that if this film's going to work even halfway for you, then at this point you have to get on the train of like this guy on the other end of the phone we don't know who he is but what we do know is he has unlimited powers like he can basically manipulate almost everything around him through the power of computer hacking in the same way as like i say in the 90s people could pull up at traffic lights pull out a big boxy laptop and just hack in and change traffic lights he can do stuff like that and yeah he can control the entire hotel down to the doors and lights yep he can be in and out of cameras in milliseconds but we learn later on that's because he's got a big fucking computer yeah because the bigger they are the better they are that's it (laughs) so yeah she's headed back to the hotel and nick realizes that this is the hotel that uh, he was going to be staying at or is staying at it's staying in yeah yeah he also says at this point that he was given a video camera in reception that's right yeah upon arrival he was given a video camera now i think he was given the video camera to record this i guess it's like a thank you or an intro video or something that was presumably going to be shown to jill some point round about dinner i couldn't help but because obviously that's what's happened it's like you know he's, he's given it for the purposes of making this video i guess my questions here or my question here is why would they give him a video camera for that purpose if the competition was cancelled sure he does have that argument though when he's told that it's cancelled he he says, well, I was just speaking to someone and exchanging emails with someone who was kind of pushing me to get this video across. So uh-huh. how can it be cancelled? Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's presumably the staff that have given it as opposed to the staff at the hotel, which is what the first thing that I thought, because just could you imagine like checking into like the Hilton and somebody being like, okay, sir, here's your key card and uh, here's your video camera and tripod and breakfast is between 6.30 and 8.30. Yeah, and if you need anything else... Press zero. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, it's weird. But then it, almost instantaneously, this guy on the phone's like, uh, now if you could just go and set the camera up by the window and film her having a fight with her boyfriend, hey, they might even fuck. Uh, you never know. Let's just see how it shakes out. Now you go and do that like a good little boy and I'll just wait here. Yeah, this is the first moment where like he encourages him to do some kind of creepy voyeuristic shit and he almost immediately is like, well, I don't know, but yes, definitely. <laughs> I don't know, this seems like a shady thing to do. Uh, Click, click, click. (laughs) (laughs) It's so fucking weird. That annoyed me immediately. I mean, at this point, I think that, like, what I would say is that if you, at this point, have been able to suspend your disbelief to the extent necessary, that, you know, that this guy can do these things, manipulate these surroundings, there is a weird amount of equipment left in this room, all this (laughs) stuff, like... A decent level of intrigue is going on. You just have to clear a few hurdles mentally to get there. Yeah. And at this point, right on cue, Jill comes back and starts hanging out with the agent. Tom. Yep, Tom. And I kind of feel like I kept on looking at this, and obviously there's more to this as it goes on, but I kept on thinking like, how he responds to all these things and how what the decisions that he makes will largely determine whether he's a likable character or not. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, while Jill's having this uh, this interaction with Tony, the hacker cord disappears for a bit and we have our first encounter with a trio of hackers who appear with lights over their faces, mm. who go over very important plot points in heavy French accents. Yeah, uh, these three French hackers give the most painful performances in the film. I'd be inclined to agree with you here. I would say, given that they are like incredibly savvy hackers, I understand that we know that Nevada uh, is the yes. best hacker mm-hmm. in the world, but also these guys are pretty good, um, but they greet absolutely every piece of news or information, big or small, with absolute incredulity. Yeah, they're leaping about with their hands up, screaming, shouting, running back and forward. They can't believe the things that they're witnessing. And they're also powerless to stop it. Um, they hack in as everyone yeah. does to everything do you know what it's like it's like when there's a group of people gathered around David Blaine or something and he throws a fucking card at a window and then it, it's on the other side of the window and everyone loses their fucking mind that's the way these French hackers behave as if Nevada is this kind of fucking magician who is doing things with hacking that has never been thought of before yes it bears mentioning at this point I think just for, again for the benefit of anyone that hasn't seen it this is a case of mistaken identity the three French hackers have uh hacked in to nick's laptop or the network or the server i don't know but um yeah they we. they start immediately referring to him as nevada who it becomes apparent is this kind of like famous titan of hacking if you like yeah he's the danny ocean 
of hacking. Yes, I like that. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, at this point, the camera is rolling. The camera that Nick has set up beside the window at Simon's instruction, filming the encounter between Jill and Tony. At this point, mm-hmm. all the lights in the room suddenly come back on right when Tony is facing the window. So he sees that there is a camera pointing at him and immediately, understandably, is curious. Sure, yeah. So again, through the wonders of hacking, because hacking, because that I think is realistically the answer to every logic flaw in this film. Yes. What happens then is he calls reception, we can hear the call, and he says, oh, what's the room that's directly opposite mine? Something weird going on. At this point, Nick's been wiped from the hotel register. Yeah, I don't think he was ever there. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With the benefit of hindsight, because she, he's told that no one's in room 700. You're more than welcome to go and have a look. Why she didn't say she would immediately send hotel security, I don't know. Mm, yeah, I suppose. But um, at this point, we find out that someone who has been in the room before this is Cord, who has uh, helpfully left behind a taser. Yeah, and has taken time to map the room to such an extent that he is able to add skillfully rendered arrows to every single frame of video to point Nick in the direction of what he has to do to evade this situation. It's like uh, a, it plays out like a video game. I'm not going to lie. See the Grand Theft Auto arrows? I'd forgotten about them. But see, when you see it on the laptop screen and he's telling him what to do to hide when they're coming... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, oh, hide the laptop under the bed. And then the arrow points under the bed for the avoidance of doubt. I spat out some wine when that happens. Uh, I, can, I can't believe it. Like, I, the arrows are my mo- one of the most annoying things in the film for me. I Actually, in my top three favorite things, but okay. It's not just Cobb that uses the arrows. The French guys use them as well. To, but theirs are like, less accomplished. It's different arrows. They're like MS Paint arrows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're trying to be a bit more urgent at that point, so maybe they don't have the time to skillfully render the arrows. Aye, I think that they're drawing them with their fingers like Andy Gray used to do on the stats board on Sky Sports. <laughs> like... Absolutely. He's over here. If he just crossed it out of the box, he'd be absolutely... <laughs> <laughs> um, but at this point, yeah, he stashes all his gear and Cord guides him to safety and a route out of the hotel by manipulating the surroundings in the sense of checking the security cameras to tell when people were coming, uh, remotely unlocking in hotel room doors so he could hide in them and then eventually blowing up all of his equipment. Yeah, he's rigged the bed to detonate. Yeah, maybe? I think that's what he does. Like, I think everything's stashed under the bed. I can only assume that the underside of the bed is rigged to explode and any subsequent explosion will destroy the equipment that has been stashed there. Yes, I think that that must be, that must be what we're doing here. And it bears mentioning that prior to Nick escaping with Simon's help or Cord's help, uh, he does taser Tony into submission and then tie him up. Yeah. yeah. Using Again. the various gags, restraints, etc. that Cord had left behind in the room. I did like the fact that, you know, you know I've said before, one of my pet hates in anything like this where we're supposed to have someone on a camera. I hate when there's a soundtrack. Yes. It pulls right. you right out. I think it was something I said when we did uh, There Are Monsters. I think that was an accusation that I leveled against There Are Monsters. Another Andy versus Mitch, Mitch choice, which I would contend is a better film than this. <laughs> if you put both those films down in front of me right now, I would grab There Are Monsters like it was my son facing an inferno. But what I particularly liked here is the use of diegetic sound as soundtrack. Because while Nick's running around the corridors, Cord turns up the TVs mm-hmm. and you get this real kind of ominous score. But it's coming from TVs, so it's not as irritating to me. In fact, I find it works quite well. Yeah, I think that that's quite smart. I think that, like, um, obviously, the kind of tech element of this is, like, a little bit ropey, to say the least of it. Sure. But I think that, like, it does use it to its advantage a few times. And I think that a lot of the times that part of it or that element of it does its best work is in probably about the first half hour or so. Right. I also want to say as well that like, and again, I came into this remembering having really quite enjoyed it. And I would say that like, despite the fact that you are patently dealing with a ridiculous film here, I would say that at this point, I still wasn't having a bad time with it at all. I was like, oh, that feels like a stretch. That's not something that a real person could do. Why do those three French hackers have horizontal bars of light strapped to their faces? Those questions were still kind of pervading in my mind. But (laughs) I wasn't having a bad time with it at all. But he gets to his car and it's time to follow Jill. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, it's around about this time that my notes start to threaten off because this stuff in the car goes on for fucking ages. This is actually kind of a steep drop because... 
we are to follow Jill from the hotel to the kind of rental apartment that she's staying in. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, the three Frenchmen reappear, continue to refer to Nick as Nevada. He kind of realizes that he can use this situation to his advantage and enlists their help to kind of help him beat or get the better of Cord. Yeah, Nevada, by the way, one of my favorite discontinued links or axe fragrances of my teens. A plus plus Andy trivia from my Wednesday evening. Yeah, you're welcome. We now find out that for Cord's next trick, he's also hacked Jill's laptop. Yeah. Uh, desktop yeah. computer. Mm-hmm. Now, what I would say is that I am sitting here wine in hand, being like, oh, hackers can't do that, hackers can't do that, hackers can't do this. I've got no fucking idea what hackers can and can't do. But I do feel like a lot of this is nonsense. I'm not even prepared to speculate. As far as I'm concerned, as long as they don't hack my webcam... <laughs> I don't give a fuck. <laughs> um, also, just want to mention that while, it, while Nick was trying to escape and get directed out, Simon tells him to get out of the hotel room and turn right, and the first thing he does is turn left. Right, brilliant. But yeah, we get there, and we get our first look at Cord here, mm-hmm. who is um, he is a knife-wielding, I don't want to say madman at this point, can't speculate about that, but he's a masked knife wielder shall we say who has the capacity to go in and kill jill if he wants to yeah um a bit of the collector in here yeah absolutely yeah i would say that that's a fair visual comparator i would say but yeah the call was coming from inside the house as it were cord uh, communicates with nick and basically we realize at this point that he's hiding in a cupboard at jill's house this gets pretty horrendous for a stretch here yeah it's quite unpleasant so i want to talk about it because i think that there's a couple of plot points that are worth digging into here but i don't want to dwell on it too long because it's fairly heavy stuff yeah, no problem. <laughs> we discover first on Jill's laptop, something's been installed there or Nick installed something there because, again, that's apparently something you can do. And yeah, he's got to drag something onto her desktop. Yeah. It kind of pushes back a little bit about, about doing this but ultimately makes the decision to do it because I think it comes down to you either move that or I'll kill her. That's right, yeah. It's very direct blackmail. So at this point, we see that Tony has woken up in the hotel. He's come to... He's got what appears to be like an electrified ball gag in his mouth. Sure, yeah. <laughs> that they are using to torture him. So this is basically used as a device to kind of uh, railroad Jill into compliance. Yeah, yeah. So basically what happens is Cord is telling Nick to tell Jill to essentially take her clothes off, open her shirt wider, open her legs, open her legs wider. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like like we said, it's it's all pretty fucking unpleasant stuff. Yeah, I guess it's kind of necessary for where the plot needs to go, but it's it's yeah, it's pretty unflinching. It's pretty heavy going. I'm not certain it needed to be as drawn out as it is. Do you know? I think Sasha Gray does a good job here. I think in this specific sequence, yes, I would say that performance overall is a little bit variable. But I think that actually, when she's having to hit a couple of emotional beats like this, I think that yeah, pretty good. So to like having kind of one step removed from what's going on, uh, Cord is having Nick do the instructions basically. But he does give Nick a little bit carte blanche to kind of do what he wants and say what he wants about this, and I think that that's kind of interesting because Nick starts to kind of like almost, if you under the circumstances, pardon the expression, but he starts to kind of use his imagination. Sure. And I think that that's quite gross. Yeah. I think it's that thing. You know, um, occasionally someone will do one of these tests where it's like a modern art installation or it's like a piece of performance art where someone will like stand there and let bystanders do whatever they like to them. And then after a certain point, when people are given carte blanche to do what they like, they start to very much do that. And things tend to take a turn towards the darker side. Mm-hmm. Like um, um, uh, the Stanford Prison Experiment. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, uh, I feel like that's kind of what happens here. Like the minute that you're kind of anonymous and in control of a situation like this, I think Nick maybe goes, "Yeah, do you know what? I might never get this opportunity to see this stuff." So he does let that dark side take over just a little bit. I I think that there is because he's obviously he's under duress and the stakes are high. But I think that there is an intentional wavering or kind of blurring of that line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely agree, and I think that's important for the character but i think again it's purely just a device so that what happens later has more impact maybe but um i think i think i'd be quite curious to know if any of the if any of the listeners out there have actually taken the time to catch up with the film before they watch this i'd be quite curious to know what they think about this because i think that it's a bit of a ambiguity point for me in this film because i kind of feel like it walks a fairly thin line between uh making this quite interesting point and just being a little bit exploitative and i can't quite figure out which side of the line i'm on and i'd be quite curious to know what other people think about that However, Jill is smarter than the average bear. She has picked up her phone with her left hand while all this is going on and has uh, called the police. Cord, of course, blocks the call because hacking. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but uh, then the Frenchmen reappear on the feed. Cord has disappeared and they confirm that Nick can freely talk to Jill. <laughs> I love you. You're my favourite actress. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, something like that. Um, on the surface, this looks like a tactical blunder to me, but actually, hmm. Cord comes in, he bursts in and uh, knocks it out. Police surround the building. Yeah, 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 Mitch. This is a point uh, where my notes say, oh, now there's a chase, this is dung, I've tuned out, and I don't care. Okay, um, so... The, I believe it's the French hackers who end up managing to connect a call with the police. So by the time this sequence has reached the end and it's time for Cord to make his escape, the SWAT team has descended. That's right, that's correct, yes. And uh, Nick takes it upon himself to race to Jill's rescue. However, he sautoed them. The video isn't live. And he's escaped. Simon is away already at this point. I agree with you, Andy. I would say that I've been talking about this and saying that... Um, there are certain things that, about this and the way that it's put together that I think are really effective. I think that there are certain trains that if you can commit to getting on them, you can kind of have a bit of fun with the intrigue of this thing. Yeah. Um, I think mm-hmm. that if you take a step back from it, there's a couple of instances where it's got maybe not particularly enlightening, but things to say about the industry and about certain pockets of fandom and things like that that I largely agree with. Yeah, um, as it kind of gets towards the end of the film, there is some interesting stuff pops up there, but it doesn't make it any better. What about <laughs> say is this whole section here has loads and loads of urgency in the dialogue and in the delivery but it doesn't translate into the film because the film never seems urgent at all I completely agree with you. I think that this is the point where, because I came at this from the angle of being very ready to talk about the things about it that I liked, which I think I still have done. But mm-hmm. um, it's at this point where I realized I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, I've made a rod for my own back here to a certain extent, because you're right. The chase sequence here basically embodies all the worst things about this film. I think that you're correct in saying that the pacing hits an absolute wall. This mm-hmm. sequence, like you say, it's played out as this extremely high stakes piece of storytelling, but it makes no real successful attempt to to get any feeling out of you in the process of doing that. No, like, no, and it's it's such a f- preposterously stunt-heavy sequence. Cops are shooting out windows, police cars are flipping and crashing into each other. It should elicit all the feeling of a good action sequence. It should get your adrenaline raised. You should be worried about Nick, and you should be worried about the fact that Jill's in the boot of the car. And, well, God, the cops are chasing Nick. They think he's it's him that's doing it. But none of it has any weight. No, I think that basically after you realize what the stakes are, which as you say, our cord has kidnapped Jill. She is in the trunk of his car. Nick is chasing him. He's being pursued by the police. The environment is being manipulated this time by the French hackers. As soon as you know what the stakes are, this sequence becomes a wait to find out what happens next rather than an exciting vehicle to get there. Yeah, and I don't care how much I love an actress. Self-preservation is going to kick in. His entire motivation is saving Jill when, for all intents and purposes, the story is that the cops are now chasing him, believing him to be the kidnapper. Yeah. There is no sense of self-preservation in Nick. There is no sense of urgency or, like I say, weight to any of it. It's like someone knows how an action sequence should play out, but in their head going, we haven't quite hit that height yet. Let's just drag this sequence out for another five minutes to see if we can get it to that fever pitch that we need it to be at. And then just eventually going, we're not going to do this. We can't stay in this car any longer. Yeah, I agree. I think that this, it, it doesn't bring a great deal to the table and uh, it occupies quite a lot of real estate in the middle of the film. And I think that it's responsible for what I think is extremely difficult to not characterize as a sag that I think it takes it takes the film a really long time to recover from. Mm, yeah, yeah. Also, around about this time as well, we learned that whatever gadgetry is at play here, that Nick is able to see movements in a bag in the boot of the other car yes i they they um because we basically figured out that jill was in the trunk of the car because she's in a bag with a bunch of cameras and they map the That's right, cameras yeah. and figure out that they have kind of clustered around in the shape of a human foot yeah this stuff is bad yeah get out of my fucking sight this stuff is i hate this whole this whole bit it just serves as a means for us to see what's going on in that other car without actually cutting to the other car it feels like avoiding cutting to the other car by using every possible angle of the central gimmick of this film which is the whole thing of unfolding on screens and if you will open window yeah they could have just showed us more of Cord's discussion with Nick and just see her creeping up on him a bit more yeah the convoluted digital recreation of activities throughout the car as she picks up a knife and crawls through into the back and then into the front it's I hate it. I hate this whole section in the middle of this film. Yeah, it's the film doing its worst work by a stretch. Um, However, just to very quickly hit on, because like I say, there's a lot of nonsense that goes on here, but there is also a couple of fairly important plot points 
Yeah, I think we need to really streamline the events here, Mitch, and just hit on the key plot points. I don't think there's any value into barreling down into the numerous twists that the film tries to lay on. Really, none of them matter because they're all fake-outs. They're all pointless, uneventful fake-outs. It's kind of like the entirety of The Usual Suspect. Yeah, I guess, yeah. It's the first and only time I would say that somebody will mention The Usual Suspect in a conversation about open windows. Yeah, I'm not giving you any more time on that comment. So to kind of very abruptly and to kind of very succinctly sum up what we learn or what we need to know come the end of the car chase, basically it ends in Nick crashing his car. Crashes his car, headbutts the steering wheel, looks very much like he's dead, and this feels very much like the end of a film. Although when you click on to see how long is left, there's still 26 minutes left, because this film's 100 minutes long. Sure is. Um, so yeah, we have got Nick Crash's car, you're correct. Also, we realise that Cord has, it seems, killed Nevada and replaced him and taken control of the servers. Yeah, yeah, those big fancy glowing computers. Again, my IT knowledge or lack thereof kind of ring fences me in from saying anything too kind of uh, snarky <laughs> about this because I don't know how close it is to the truth. Yeah, 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 Mitch. I'm sitting here criticizing this film and as far as I'm concerned, technology peaked where that computer that opens into a fridge from Hello Mary Lou Prom Night 2. I thought the same about the Lazy Boy. All right, okay. So Card had posted something on this Jill Goddard website, basically saying that yeah. the the video that he made of her in her house earlier was going to be posted online. Yeah, he's put it up with a timer saying that in, uh, I think originally it's like 40 minutes and I think there's now, or half an hour and I think there's like 40 seconds left or something. And at the end of this time, this video of Jill with her top open and her legs spread is going to go live on that website. Therefore, rocketing it into the top websites in the world. But that's not really what his plan is. And I think that this, this is the point where the film tries to say something interesting, but I think mishandles it. Yeah, I'd be inclined to agree. So basically what happens when this goes live is that Cord has trailed this as being this kind of like a scandalous kind of video of an air quotes adult nature. Mm -hmm. When the time comes for the video to go live, what you see instead is Jill tied up in front of uh, some explosive. It's a petrol tanker. Basically. Yeah, it's a petrol, it's a petrol, tanker, petrol tanker. Petrol tanker that's where to explode. Cord on the video live explains what the stakes are, which basically are as follows. If everyone who is watching right now closes the window, she will stay alive. And if they stay, then she'll die. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, this is kind of, the film has touched a couple of times at this point on trying to make comments on internet culture at the time and voyeur culture and things like that. I think that the point that it's trying to land on here is that all these people frequent this website ostensibly because they love this actress. Mm -hmm. But when presented with the opportunity to watch someone die on camera, they won't leave. I guess it's similar to the pig fucking episode of Black Mirror. When faced with something like that, featuring someone as well known as the Prime Minister, or as in this case, Jill, people are going to want to watch that. I've always said, Mitch, that if you hand me a DVD disc, right, and tell me that someone I know is on that disc fucking, right, it's a porno with someone I know in it, I don't care who the fuck they are, right, whether they're the most hideous creature I've ever set my eyes upon, or whether they're the most beautiful specimen in the world, I'm going to fucking watch it. Okay. Right? <laughs> okay. How could you not? Like, curiosity takes over. And in that sense, I think that this film tries to say something interesting here, but then fumbles the ball a bit by having called be this fucking creepy guy anyway. Okay. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, it feels kind of like it has a stab at something interesting and then blows it all away by bringing you back to exactly what you suspected about the character in the first place. I suppose that's true. We'll get into that in a sec. What I do want to say, Andy, on that DVD, I'm afraid it's me. I'm a pizza delivery guy. It's a non-speaking role, and I'm only on screen for 30 seconds. Well, I, I'm glad you told me it was you, because I actually thought it was Harry from Bigfoot and the Hendersons. That's <laughs> them. I, I, I could just see hair. I could just see a, a nondescript carpet of hair over a humanoid form. And I just assumed it was Bigfoot and the Hendersons, the dirty version. Big Root. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And like someone had just taken a regular actor and wrapped him in a book of carpet samples. That's it. Yeah, just stapled dolls hair all over him. Moving swiftly on. Um, so ultimately, the viewership on the site goes down, but not enough. I think he says something like not even 10% of people closed their windows. Yes, I believe that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so therefore saying that there are people out there who are going to go, no, this, this isn't for me. I don't want to watch someone die. But then a whole bunch of other people rubbing their hands together, presumably with their trousers around their ankles because they thought they were going to get something titillating to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now instead they just get to watch it explode. Yeah, and that's what happens. We see an explosion. Although to be fair, I think if I was watching that video... I could tell it was a fake explosion. It's terrible. Yes, it's pretty bad. Continue. But it's a fake-out death, and we realise at this point that Cord is, like you say, Andy, basically just kind of like another vaguely creepy guy who has now been like, we have faked your death, we now have a window to take you away from this awful, superficial world that kind of commodifies you as being this um, sexual object. Yes, Mm -hmm please join me in this underground utopia where I can treat you like a sexual object. Um, I think that this film has a lot of problems in the third act. Like I think in terms of trying to land on kind of making cohesive points and things like that and kind of trying to get the plot where it needs to go, it becomes this kind of blind dependence on the technology and fake outs and there's a couple too many false bottoms in here. Mm -hmm. Basically what happens is Cord takes Jill underground or not necessarily underground, but I guess into this warehouse where presumably they're going to live happily ever after in quiet solitude. Yeah, and uh, um, some kind of crystal maze style fucking seclusion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Come live with me in the industrial zone. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Um, at this point, though, a digitally manipulated voice comes booming over the sound system. Uh, the digitally manipulated oh. voice is digitally manipulated, but it's still transparently Elijah Wood. Yes. He is Nevada. Yeah, and if you're thinking, how the fuck has he done this? What could it possibly be? Uh, let me run through what it could be. Could it be? Uh, uh, I don't think it's a doppelganger situation. Then you, my friend, are wrong. It's a fucking doppelganger situation. All right, okay. Now, I know that I picked it, and it's me that should be able to answer these questions. Yeah. But we find out at this point that Elijah Wood is Nevada, the master hacker. Correct. The hacker who is apparently responsible for 90% of the world's headline news. This has been this kind of long-form mission to flush out Cord, which immediately right. made me cycle back in my head to look at like you know like puzzles within puzzles within puzzles to figure out if this actually tied in logically. I got midway through that process and decided to just watch the end of the film instead. Don't waste your time with the maths. Um, they might make sense, but it doesn't make much sense in the film. This is the point where the suspension of disbelief is so staggering. You either buy it or you don't. And at this point, I was laughing. This is where I think that you have to... Because I think that suspension of disbelief is something that people use a little too readily to defend logic flaws in films. In the same way as I don't like it when people talk about films being enjoyable and characterize it by saying, I mean, you can just sit back and switch your brain off. And it's like, well, I don't want to switch my brain off. I prefer my brain being on. I actually subscribe to the this is mindless nonsense kind of theory. Yeah, but I don't like the notion of being like, oh, you just have to disengage from it to enjoy it. I think you just need to find the level on which you're going to enjoy it. Right, okay, fair. But I think that with this, I would say that I let suspension of disbelief hide a multitude of sins in the first two acts. Right. And I think that this is the tipping point where you have to take a step back from this and hold your hands up and say no more. (laughs) Because when Nevada says that in his attempt to kind of flush out Cord as being this kind of insurgent cutite hacker, has assumed the form of Nick via hacking question mark yeah he found nick in charge of this website picked him up in the street stolen his identity stolen his face in fact in a little while in the film we see elijah wood stripping off some prosthetic face pieces i'm gutted we didn't get to see who played them underneath that it was tv's patrick duffy (laughs) it's fucking nonsense right at the end here yeah, I mean, I, I think that, like, basically, I think that all we really need to land on is that uh, Elijah Wood has simultaneously played the characters of Nick and Nevada, who are two different people. Correct. It yeah, has been exactly uh, the same to the point that this is not just clever prosthetics. This is straight up the same actor. Twice. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's 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 he's he's basically like parent trapped him. <laughs> So ultimately, Cord dies in his own trap because uh, the circumstances are such he needs to uh, flee back inside the warehouse to try and put a stop to the escape attempt that is now happening. Yes, that's right. And ultimately, by that time, because we've been sawtooed again and that feed wasn't live, Nevada and Jill are now underground and Cord burns in the warehouse. Correct. Yeah, yeah. He emulates in his own trap, hoisted by his own petard. 
Yes, hoisted by his own fiery, fiery petard. At this point, we join Nevada and Jill underground as we figure out what's been going on. And we understand that Nevada needed to flush out Cord because reasons. Sure. And uh, now needs his identity protected and basically hides and basically makes the suggestion that he and Jill hide out until the coast is clear. Uh, Jill asks what good that would do her. At this point, Convenient News FM chimes in saying that uh, tickets for Dark Skies 3 the film are selling at a record pace at a rate that could only be described as breakneck you're quite right andy basically it makes the offensive inference that jill is worth more dead than alive <laughs> yeah so she resolves to stay underground with nevada for a bit they recede back into this underground hacking movement slash utopia full of beer and all of her favorite films and the film ends yeah it ends with her essentially asking nick what he plans to do after all this has died down and he says that he's just going to disappear and she essentially asks him, how can I do the same? Yeah, so exactly. I'm guessing he's going to facilitate that through his network of contacts and by hacking stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, that's, that's how he handles all of his other problems. So, like, yeah, absolutely. Um, with that, open windows end. And, right, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about my fluid opinion on this film. I um, want to just say first, Mitch, that this was an incredibly difficult film to talk about. I agree. I actually found it very difficult to talk about in a linear way. because, And I think that, actually... It was only as we were going through the beats of this, and for anyone that hasn't watched the film that's listened to this, I really hope that you've been able to kind of cling to a strand of this, because it took until we started talking about it before I realised how much of what feels like crucial plot beats in this film are actual complete waste. Or not necessarily waste, but like fake outs, and if you're trying to hit the bullet points or something, then not necessarily things you have to include. Yeah, that this film was more than 75 minutes long as an absolute offence. I actually think that there's a strong film in there if you were willing to burn this back to 75, 78 minutes. Right. Like, I think that I, I, I think that there's room for this to be a reasonably sharp, reasonably interesting, engaging, again, flawed tech horror with a little bit of commentary about internet culture and things like that in there. But it spends so much of its time getting mired in plot intricacies in the second half that so few of them end up really having any kind of bearing on the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. But I do want to say, I mean, I think Elijah Wood's great again, and I think Sasha Gray does good work. I I normally would say that I like Neil Maskell, but I don't like him at all here, and I think the French guys are terrible. And another thing I want to say is, like I said at at the start, I like Nacho Vigalondo's films. I really do. This feels like a weird anomaly in the middle. There's a few things about it that feel like kind of a sore thumb to me. And like I say, I mean, I, I completely agree with everything you're saying just there. Like, I mean, I, I, I think Elijah Wood is really good in this. And I also think that Elijah Wood continues to just generally be an asset to horror. Yeah. In the sense that I think that like he does a lot of interesting work kind of behind the camera and away from the camera, but also just continues to kind of throw himself into these eccentric projects that catch his eye. And I think that whether or not I think it's any good actually doesn't matter. I think it's cool. In the same way that I think that Ethan Hawke does this with genre as well. Right. They're all kind of reputable name actors who kind of quite fearlessly throw themselves into these eccentric projects. And with Ethan Hawke, I'm thinking about things like Predestination. Sinister. And Sinister, yeah, which I think is one of the best studio horrors of the last 10, 20 years. And uh, or th- Nicolas Cage. Absolutely, yeah. It's re- in fairness, yeah, Color Out of Space, Mandy, like he's picking some really bold stuff and it's drawing attention to things for the right reasons and I think that that's really cool. However, I think that what you have here is something that I misremembered as being um, a little bit stronger and a little bit smarter, to be honest. And I don't mind making that admission just now. But what I would say mm-hmm. is that this feels like somebody who had something to say and an idea of how to say it. And I would say that basically the points that it's trying to hit on, I think, are probably still right enough and probably still accurate now. But I would say that the execution is considerably more haphazard than I remembered. Yeah, and I feel like it does kind of pave the way for some of the stuff that came after it. Like the Unfriended films, uh, I just want to say at this point that Unfriended Dark Web's excellent. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I kind of feel like we can't talk about this on the timeline with stuff like this without talking about Unfriended a little bit. And mm-hmm. I thought the first Unfriended was great fun. I saw that in the cinema and ha- I had an absolutely packed cinema and had an absolute riot with it. I thought it was brilliant, like really, really fun time. But I thought it was a fun film. Whereas yeah. Unfriended Dark Web is super nasty and really fun with it yeah yeah i I thought unfriended dark web was excellent but then you get other stuff like like friend request and all that kind of stuff that obviously has a similar idea but if anything is even more poorly executed than open windows i i think that friend request is probably the absolute nadir of these films yeah i mean in that i guess in that respect then open windows kind of feels like 
a trailblazer of sorts. Yeah, it's that. I mean, like, I'd be curious to know if anybody can name one of these from earlier than this. But it's the first one that I can remember doing this. That, that spending like rooting so hard in technology and committing really hard to that conceit and i mean also Mm. i mean i also want to mention this might be a more obscure reference for our international listeners but cyberbully right uh the channel Four short tv movie with uh, Maisie williams which was also a kind of ghost in the machine horror film and also searching the john cho thriller film from a couple years back i think that like this conceit has gone on to be used in smarter ways than this yeah, and there's been a lot of stuff done with, with Skype as well. Like VHS had a segment that was done entirely over Skype. But I think it's interesting that Open Windows is basically my idea or my recollection of the first film that did this, but by no means the template for what came after it. Yeah, It feels kind of justified that it lives in the shadows of some of the films that we've talked about because it has been done and it's been used. This device has been used much more savvily and much in a much smarter ways. Yeah, okay. So for as much as it was my experience, I am disappointed to hear that the sour for you on rewatch as well yeah it definitely did i felt it lost me very very quickly um it lost me at instant unquestioning compliance okay i would say that i wrote out a little bit further i would say i would say it takes until the second car chase before i checked out or realized that i'd made a slight error in judgment by recommending this or picking this today (laughs) that second car chase is interminable yes it is interminable you're absolutely right you're absolutely right it was around about that point mitch that i questioned my friendship with you But yeah, here we are. Here we are. Uh, All's forgiven. And with that, I guess there's not a great deal left to say about Open Windows, unless any of you guys have any input. And I'd be very curious to know what any of you thought about this or have thought about this and you've seen it in the past and if you do want to get in touch and let us know what you think then you can do so through all the usual channels facebook and instagram are strong language violent scenes you can tweet us as well at strong violent pc and you can email scenes at gmail.com or, of course, weigh in on our brand new shiny Facebook group, The Chud Locker. Yeah, absolutely. And you can also hop onto our website, strongvalentpod.com, where you can find out all the information that you would ever need to know about the podcast. And there's also a contact form on there. If none of the methods that Mitch just mentioned appeal to you. Also, Mitch and I are on Twitter at Andy Makes Stuff and who else but Mitch. And we're both on Instagram at EverlyOptimitch and Andy Stewart Makes Stuff. Go find us on there. Yeah, why not? So if you're listening to this on air date, then thanks very much for that. We appreciate you being up with the Lark and checking it out. But also, hopefully, you'll be joining us tonight at 8 p.m. for our first ever live Zoom watch along, Species 2. <laughs> yes, I can't wait. I am buzzing for this. I'm really excited to uh, see how many of you guys turn out. Really looking forward to hanging out and just watching some garbage. Yeah, and I just want to say one more time that this will not be like normal live shows. This won't be released as an episode. So if you're not there in the room, that's it. It's going to be lost to the night. <laughs> sure yeah hopefully you guys can join us for that failing that we will be back on monday with another mini-sode for your ears we'll be doing all the usual stuff on there we'll be taking a little look at what we've been watching this week also hopefully my 90s side quest will be continuing although i do really need to squeeze something in there you need to get that done <laughs> um, we'll also be taking a look at your feedback of course and playing another round of mitch's pitches and letting you know all that you need to know about next week's episode which i would say a lot of people are going to be very interested in, and also I think the newest film that we've ever done. Oh, yes, almost certainly. Yeah, pretty sure about that. We will be back either tonight or Monday, depending on your schedule. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.